Welcome to Ulcerative Colitis, Autoimmune Healing Journey. I am your journey guide, Jay India, and I'm so happy that you are here because this is a supportive, positive environment where we can heal together. Please note, I am not a doctor or health professional in any way. If you would like to attempt something mentioned in this episode, please consult your doctor or mental health professional. Today, we have Dr. Peg DiTulio. She has extensive experience with chronic inflammatory response syndrome, or SIRS, what we've been talking about all month, and mold toxicity, leaky gut, IBD, and so much more. She applies an integrative medical model using pharmaceutical, nutraceutical, lifestyle changes, and exercise programs to facilitate wellness. Dr. Peg is a certified clinician in the Shoemaker Protocol for SIRS. Having worked with over a thousand SIRS patients over the past eight years, she understands the nuances of the symptoms that each patient presents with. Welcome, Dr. Peg. Thank you so much for having me. I will celebrate every opportunity to share the information that helps people understand their illness better and what they might do to control some of these inflammatory things better. Perfect. That's exactly what we want today. Uh, Before I start interviewing Dr. Peg, I just want to talk about the pronunciation. SIRS is spelled C-I-R-S. I I have heard it pronounced SIRS. I've heard it pronounced SIRS. I was listening to Dr. Peg on Dr. Judy's podcast. Dr. Judy herself kept pronouncing it SIRS or SIRS. So I don't know. Dr. Peg, do you have any advice on that? I would say the majority of people say SIRS. Um, I've never heard Dr. Shoemaker correct someone for saying it a different way. Uh, So I think we're different parts of the country. People pronounce things differently or put different accents. Pretty much we know what that means when they say seers. Perfect. Because yeah, I also listen to Dr. Shoemaker and I've heard he just says sir. So whatever you guys want to say. If you want to put a little Jersey accent on it, you good. I'm from Jersey, so. <laughs> All right. So April 2023 is SIRS month on this podcast. And Dr. Peg, you are the grand finale episode. You are the fourth and final episode. Oh, so exciting. Cool. And <laughs> I've given, or I've tried my best to give, a comprehensive definition of SIRS over and over. But I would love for you to give your definition of SIRS. Yes. So SIRS is a largely genetic situation. I say largely because there are certain situations where uh, someone might not have the genetics and might have such an overwhelming exposure that they could acquire this illness as well. So I tend to not speak in absolutes for that reason. I'll say most of the time, the majority of the time, it is a genetic disorder that creates with toxic exposure to not just mold, mold spores, particulates, certain bacteria, certain other toxins that uh, fish will, will carry or other things like that. So there are multiple triggers for this chronic inflammatory state that creates dysregulation in the immune system. So it's not an immune deficiency disorder. It's an immune dysregulation disorder. And so it presents in a multi-system, multi-symptom constellation. And there are certain blood markers that are associated. They're not specific for SIRS. So it does take an experienced person to interpret these results in light of the exposure history and the symptoms. So we have markers, blood markers, we have volumetric brain measurements that can actually help us diagnose, and we have gene activation studies called the genie, which can also give us a really very specific idea of what is activating that person in terms of their immune system. Okay. So the way I describe SIRS and the way I've been breaking it down, and please feel free to disagree. (laughs) If I've been doing it wrong all month, please let me know. (laughs) But the way I describe it, the best way I can break it down so it's not so scientific is you have this exposure to either mold or some type of biotoxin. And if you carry this SIRS gene, you are not able to drain the toxins out of your body like a regular healthy person. Is that correct? Well, it's not, not, it is correct. Let me just, let me just put a couple nuances in there though. 
So the genetic problem with SIRS is that the immune system can see the toxin in the body. It cannot create an antibody to engulf and remove it. So you have an immune system that is activated, ongoing in a futile attempt to remove something that in the 75% of the people that don't have the genetics is easily removed, but that 25% of the population that lack this particular ability genetically, they will accumulate and the immune system will continue to just to try to remove it. That creates a whole host of disorganization when you have an immune system. So for example, a person will describe, sometimes describe their onset of their illness as it seemed like I got the flu one day and it never went away. And that's because they're in a constant cytokine storm. That's what the flu creates. What COVID creates, it's a cytokine storm. People with SIRS have a cytokine storm all the time. So we treat them and the cytokine storm goes away, removing them from their exposure as number one. And cytokine, I just want to define it for everyone. It's the toxin. The cytokine is the immune fighter. Okay. So when we have an infection, our immune system puts out these fighters to go and kill, remove the die off from this particular offender. So the cytokine storm is why we feel so bad when we have the flu. It's not mm-hmm. the virus. It's not the virus. The virus is killed by our fighters within days of that infection. Why, why are we still on the couch a week later? Because the cytokine storm is so robust to make sure that we survive the infection that it has, it's basically the wake of the storm. It's the wake of the storm. And if you have the flu, you do recover. If you have SIRS and it's activated, you will not recover until it is treated. Okay. And this activation, because I've been talking about this this past month, and again, I'm trying my best to talk about it as a non-SIRS expert, but the way I understand it is you have to have at least a one-time biotoxin exposure. So that means you are in a moldy building, a watery, uh, what do you call it? Water disease building, water? Uh, Water damage building. Water damage building. So you have something like that. You eat sushi and there are biotoxins on it, um, in it. You go out on a boat and you decide to fish and have some of that fish and there are biotoxins because the big fish ate the small fish that had the toxins. So that's the way I've been describing it. And also, does it have to be a physical event or can it be emotional trauma that brings on or activates that SIRS gene? That's a great question, Jay, the emotional trauma question. Because I think it's something we all grapple with. All of us in practice, I can speak for myself, have seen situations where a significant emotional trauma appears to trigger the whole system. Now, we don't really have good data on that. So that's why I'm hedging, because I'm, I'm really speaking more from my experience and my observations. And it is an area that I think many of us would like to, you know, at some point do more research to see. But it's certainly something that we think likely can be a, can be a trigger. Wow. Okay. So it can be the physical event, but again, not all the scientific evidence there. It could be an emotional trauma as well. And that's what happened to me, Dr. Pegg. I was abused as a child. I was sexually abused and I didn't tell anyone until my early 40s. And then when I did, all of a sudden, my body went into this, just no other way to say it, the shit storm. And all of a sudden, what I think now is the surge gene was activated. I truly think that because it's like the flu, what you're talking about. I thought I had the flu, I don't know, five times or something. I'm like, I don't, how is this possible to have the flu? (laughs) I don't even go out that much. I, I stay at home. And by the way, it was during COVID when the flu was low and no one was even leaving their house. So things like that kept happening. So I'm, I'm right there with you on, it could be emotional. Yes. 
Yeah. Could absolutely be mold. So what is the connection between SIRS and mold toxicity to ulcerative colitis and inflammatory bowel disease? Yeah. So what we know about SIRS is that there is a disorganization of the way the immune system works. And what we know about ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease is that even though the jury is out in terms of autoimmune versus just immune direct disorganization, there's an immune component to these inflammatory conditions. Now, from an autoimmune standpoint, if we were to say that some cases of inflammatory bowel are clearly autoimmune, if that's a belief. What we know about SIRS is when the cytokine storm is going on, one of the consequences of the storm is that there's a reduction in the protective white blood cells that help us not to turn on an autoimmune gene. So that epigenetic component, just like with the emotional response, we talk about epigenetics, complex area, a lot of research, a lot more to be done, that things trigger these, these genes that we carry. And we know that if you lose the protection of these Treg, we call them T-regulatory cells, and this is documented in SIRS, there is a panel of Treg cells that Dr. Shoemaker identified early on in the research. And in fact, he identified them and then the main laboratories would not necessarily add them to their inventory of tests. In the Northeast, I've been fortunate in that I've negotiated one drawing station that does all of the SIRS labs and sends them to the reference labs that I want them to go to. And one of the things that they added was a wild code for this Treg panel that Dr. Shoemaker had identified a long time ago. And when these particular Treg cells drop in number, you have a higher risk of an autoimmune gene being turned on. So Mm -hmm. that's not just inflammatory bowel, that's rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, Sjogren's. There's a whole myriad of autoimmune conditions. SIRS certainly is associated with higher risk for the onset of autoimmunity. Hashimoto's thyroiditis, we see, now that's a common thing in the the general population. So let's just understand that, but, but it's very common in the SIRS population as well. And we can sometimes see the reversal of the autoimmune component of that if we catch them early and, we're, and they're treated and they're removed from the exposure. I've seen uh, the autoantibodies associated with Hashimoto's go away hmm. in some cases, not, not, certainly not the majority, but it tells us, it really clearly shows us how the, how the, the illness is connected to the autoimmunity. So, okay. So, have many of us been misdiagnosed with UC and IBD when we really have SIRS? Or is it just that SIRS is the root cause of everything? Well, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I can answer that with certainty. I, I mean, theoretically, theoretically, when you have an immune system that's misbehaving, it's almost like your corporate officers have left the corporation and everybody is kind of doing their own thing. And when that happens, and when some of the things that happen are inflammatory, you can have a direct problem with inflammation to any organ system. And so even if you know this whole autoimmune versus just immune reactivity type thing, so in terms of what is the, my own opinion is that we're, we're probably seeing both in something like UC and Crohn's disease. There's probably some autoimmunity in some of the cases, but other times it's just purely immune misbehavior and reaction to what's happening. Okay. So how does leaky gut come into play with SIRS and mold toxicity and all of that? Yes. So the primary regulatory hormone that influences how tight the junctions are in the intestine is melanocyte stimulating hormone, or MSH as we call it for short. 
there's a direct link between MSH and the integrity of not only the gut lining, but the upper nasal passage as well. That's one of its many roles. In SIRS, MSH levels drop in the majority of people to very low levels. So here again, it's like your corporate officer left and there's no protection, there's no organization. And so that gut lining takes certainly takes a hit from the lack of supervision and the lack of, of you know, integrity of that hormone. So it's kind of starts the process in a bad way. And then depending on the person's own lifestyle, if you have somebody who is consuming a lot of sugar, simple carbohydrates, right? Then you colonize with candida. And now you have to manage the candida. So then you have other opportunistic organisms that come into this milieu. So the dysregulation of the hormones sets the stage for bad things to happen. And then it just depends on how many bad things are coming together in terms of how significant the issues will be. Yeah, I used to be a sugar addict. (laughs) And I didn't realize, I mean, I always knew it was bad. But I was doing it as a child in the 1980s, where I've always said, if you were thin, which I was a thin child, no one cared. All anyone cared about in the 1980s was what you look like and what you weighed and no one cared. I was just (laughs) big into sugar. And it's taken me a lot to really take that down. And to not eat pretty much any form of, I mean, I eat fruit and things like that. And I'll eat something with, um, I can't remember the name of it, monk fruit or something like that. Mm -hmm. But it's taken a lot. And I've seen as I've taken out, I've taken even coconut sugar, things like that out of the diet. It's made a huge difference. And it's made a huge difference in my gut. So, and also with the leaky gut, I was diagnosed with leaky gut through my natural doctor who's coming on a couple episodes after you. And she was saying to me, I see with, well, should I say this on this episode? Should I keep it as a teaser? Well, she says something about how people that come to her with IBD, they have a lot of candida. Mm-hmm. And so I found that really fascinating. I was like, okay, well, probably a lot of us are just over consuming on the sugar. And then it turns into this whole crap storm in our body. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that um, anytime the the terrain, if you talk about the terrain, anytime the terrain is disrupted, you're going to get squatters. That's how I look at it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, that's amazing. I love that. You're going to get squatters. Okay, I have to use that one. Yeah, I have to use I have to borrow that from you. So we have a wonderful listener who told me about SIRS. I had never heard about it. Her name is Shelly Apodaca K. And she discussed her SIRS story on episode 41. So Dr. Peg, if you have not listened, I would say definitely listen. And she mentioned you. So uh, yeah. And um, so she told me about a UC SIRS case study from the American Journal of Case Reports, and I found it really fascinating. So I was wondering if you would be able to discuss it in a basic way, because I read it and it's a little over my head, but I was wondering if you could talk about that. Yeah, so this was the study you're talking about from 2004, autoimmune versus immune-mediated pathogenesis of IBD. Is that the one? I'm talking about the reversal of refractory UC and severe chronic fatigue syndrome. I can't see a date on it. Oh, there it is. I got it. That's 2016, much more current. Okay, there we go. Now I see the date. Yes. (laughs) Yes. So this was actually pretty exciting to see. I had not seen this before, you know, kind of my search for preparing. The situation is one of uh, severe or significant IBD and other symptoms. So we talk about multi-symptom, multi-system. Now in this article, the, the individual wasn't specifically diagnosed with SIRS, but the description certainly fits. And the authors had used the urinary mycotoxin test versus the other the markers that say are in the Shoemaker protocol to identify 
the specific mycotoxins that were, or the specific mold. In this case, the stachybotrys, which is what people consider the most toxic black mold. Now, there's a lot of molds that are toxic, but that's the one that people uh, understand the best. But this particular individual, well, he actually did have some of the markers done here. He certainly had the genetics for poor clearance, what I mentioned before, unable to make an antibody to remove the exposure. He he had a known exposure uh, to mold. And he had the two of the cytokines that were tested were actually elevated in here, along with the urinary mycotoxin test. As he was removed from his environment and treated, what he was able to see was an improvement in the IBD symptoms, which was really what the authors were trying to, you know, to see, is this possible to reverse improve, reverse these situations that are thought to be irreversible, right? I mean, I've been a nurse practitioner a long time. Um, Physicians and and nurses are not necessarily taught about reversing these types of conditions. And yet, we know that if the underlying source of the problem is an environmental one, some kind of an acquired toxicity, that in many cases, you can manage that situation a lot better sometimes without biologics, sometimes in conjunction with them in terms of the medication. But, and sometimes, as I say, in Hashimoto's, we, we can see complete reversal of the autoimmune component for that. Yeah, this is amazing. When you read this study, it's a male 25 presenting these symptoms of UC and chronic fatigue, basically. And, and please, Dr. Peck, jump in if, I've sa- if I'm saying anything wrong. And sure. Dr. Peck talked about the study. And then at the end of the study, they, like Dr. Peck said, they removed the biotoxin exposures and they did three things. They did VIP, which we're going to talk about, VIP replacement therapy, dental extractions, and the implementation of a mind body intervention relaxation response program and the patient symptoms resolved he is off medications back to work and resuming normal exercise that's what it says so there's something called a vasoactive intestinal peptide therapy do you know anything about it dr peg Yes. Yeah, so we already talked about MSH, alpha MSH as being one of the major regulatory hormones from the hypothalamus in the brain. Vasoactive intestinal polypeptide is a sister hormone in, from the hypothalamus. So it has, as a manager, many different roles. One of the roles that it has is helping to support healing of the brain after an inflammatory assault. If you can improve the brain function, then you will improve all the regulation of the other organ systems that the brain has to do with. And so we use VIP, prescribe it, not in every case, not every case needs VIP, but in those cases where it is deficient in production, certainly, it will help with energy and endurance. So people who have low VIP, and your listeners, some may actually identify with this. You don't need the blood test to know that your VIP is likely low if when you try to exercise, when when you try to exercise or exert yourself a little bit more than you usually do, you crash that night or the next day. So we call that the push-crash phenomenon. And low VIP, classically, an individual will have that sort of presentation. So when you give nasal uh, VIP, it takes away that push-crash phenomenon. And there Mm. are people that, um, for example when they do a cardiopulmonary stress test, which is a very sophisticated test they don't do in many places, but sometimes we have patients that have had access to that. When people have this particular type of test, it will document what level of low endurance they have. So they're like heart failure patients, for ex- like second-degree you know, second heart failure patient. They're tired walking across the room. So when you give them VIP, it reverses that issue with Hmm. endurance and and you can take someone that had trouble walking across their room 
to now being able to walk outside or exercise in some manner while they're using VIP. It's a very potent peptide. It's, it was used in COVID in Israel to help people get off of the ventilators and people who are ready to go onto ventilators to help them to not need to be intubated for a ventilator. And the FDA here approved it for emergency authorization use in hospitals that were dealing with COVID patients in the ICU for that reason. It's a, it's a really remarkable tool in our toolbox for helping people with chronic fatigue. So you said it goes up the nose. Mm-hmm. Is it air that go- I'm sorry, I just don't know. It's, it's, it's liquid, it's air, it's a it's syringe just- of something. It's liquid in a in a, a pump bottle. It's a spray. So it's aerosolized. Yeah. Do you have to go to a doctor and the doctor does it for you or you can do it at home like a nasal spray? You do it at home. Oh, okay. That's easy. Yeah. Do you ever have... I'm just curious about this VIP. Just one more question. Yeah. I know it just got approved for FDA for emergencies, but have you ever seen it used it? Have you ever seen it used in another country for people who are super athletes and they're healthy, but they want to like take it up a notch? Does that happen with VIP? I have not, not heard or read or seen anything like that, but honestly, it wouldn't surprise me because it is a very potent agent to help with oxygen delivery for sure. Yeah. Okay, yeah, because I had done an episode where I did it on peptide therapy, and apparently Russia is very ahead of the ahead uh-huh. of the U.S. and it's because of their athletes, so they want to create these super athletes, so they know a lot more about peptide therapy than we do, and a lot of things are more approved over there as well. So that's why I just asked the question. I was just curious. Yes, yeah. Well, we can get VIP compounded through compound, certain compounding pharmacies. The limiting factor with VIP is its cost. The, oh active, the active ingredient is very expensive. It's one of the reasons that you don't find a lot of the compounding pharmacies doing it. So it's expensive for the compounding pharmacy to make it, and it, therefore it's expensive for the consumer to purchase it. So that is the limiting factor with VIP is the expense. Are we talking thousands of dollars for one bottle of nasal spray? So for a standard dose, four sprays a day, and many people are asked to do more than that. But for four sprays a day, it can easily cost uh, $250 to $300 for a month's supply. Okay. Well, that's better than Antivio. (laughs) Antivio is is $20,000 for four months. Trust me. I've never gone on it, but I researched it enough to know that. It's better than Antivio for sure. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you for explaining that case study because now I completely understand. I think it gives people hope. I think it's always nice to give people hope. So how is someone diagnosed with SIRS and mold toxicity? Like how, if we came into you, because I may be coming to you this summer, I have a friend that needs to go up to New Hampshire. So I want to, you know, make an appointment and coordinate all that. Um, So if that happens and I come to you and I say, Dr. Pag, I'm presenting these UC symptoms. I had a colonoscopy in 2021. I I had a life-threatening flare. I had a colonoscopy and it showed, you know, UC. And now today I've cured it 80% to 90% without pharmaceuticals, blah, blah, blah. But I still think I have SIRS. Uh, Just asking, what, what would you recommend for me? What type of testing? Yeah, so history is very important. History of exposure, number one. So And many times people don't necessarily know a building had mold, but you can describe what a water-damaged building looks like. And and many people say, yes, the school I was in had a bucket in the hallway collecting rainwater every time it rained. That's a water-damaged building, right? How many of us went to to school in places like the schools are notoriously not well-maintained because of funding? So, So history of potential exposure, and certainly current potential for exposure to fungi and to bacteria are important. Then we look at the the clinical presentation. So do you only have symptoms of IBD or do you have chronic fatigue? Do you have brain fog? Do you have pain that's unexplained in other parts of the body? Do you static shock when you open the dryer door or pet your cat? 
because that is a sign, a symptom that you're dysregulated with the antidiuretic hormone when you start to dump sodium and chloride onto the skin and become an electrical conductor. These kind of things are part of the clinical presentation. Now, in the formal SIRS diagnostic protocol, there are symptom clusters. After years of research that Dr. Shoemaker realized that there were you know, these 13 clusters, and if you a person had eight of the clusters, that was considered diagnostic for SIRS amidst the other, the other markers. Now, I want to qualify that, though, because children are different, and children often will not have the entire myriad of uh, symptoms that the adults will have. And sometimes, depending, they may not absolutely meet every eight clusters, for example. So what I mean by that is we don't rule it out. If We don't say to you, Jay, you didn't get any clusters, you're off the table. You know, we're not going to consider you for SIRS. But you have to keep that in the context of looking at the blood work. Again, these immune markers, these regulatory hormones, some autoimmune situations that we know can easily be triggered that are dangerous if they're there because of blood clotting potential. So we test for those things. So we look at blood markers. We have specialized brain imaging called the neuroquant analysis, which is a volumetric measurements of 36 brain structures. Because what do we see with SIRS? We see certain structures swell. And then we see atrophy in other structures. So we can look at the results of a neuroquant analysis, and that's going to help us. And then, of course, the ultimate is the Gini test, which actually looks at messenger RNA and gene activation. And it has markers for SIRS and some of these other things. So we have this whole menu of diagnostic tools to put together. Now, if someone is uninsured, for example, say they don't have insurance, you know, and so we have to kind of pick and choose. Modifications are certainly made for an individual. It's not that everything is required. What can, what, what can we get done here to put a diagnosis together? And ultimately, the test of any diagnosis is response to treatment, right? So any diagnosis you're talking about, if you're trying to validate the diagnosis, then you're going to look at whether the treatment made a difference. In the case of SIRS, the treatment is fairly benign. It's not a risky treatment. It's not even an expensive treatment. So it's an easy situation, even if you don't have all the diagnostic pieces because of lack of funds or something like that, that we uh, we can still initiate the treatment on a presumption and see if the person responds. Okay, because as you were saying, some of these tests, which all sound great, my mind was going cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And fortunately, we have a lot of listeners from all over the globe. And I've said this before, in the US, we have a little problem with the cost of healthcare <laughs> and, yeah. and so the whole thing. And I, you, you guys, you, the listeners know it. And of course, Dr. Pag knows it. So you do have the option for insurance if that works, if they cover it, if you're meeting your deductible, you may have to meet the deductibles, my guess, um, on a lot of these things. And if not, you can work with someone if finances are an obstacle, Correct. Yes. Well, I'm certainly speaking for myself. Now, I've been in primary care for 28 years full time. So I, I'm used to compromising on things with people, <laughs> right? So that is that goes without saying. And I think I'm speaking for the majority of people, say in the shoemaker camp, that are used to, pe- to, used to people not having the ideal situation financially. So I do think there's, an under, there's really a sensitivity to that. You may find one or two of the people that maybe aren't comfortable without all the data moving forward. But I, I, I think that would be rare. Okay. Yeah. So that makes sense. So, okay, let's say I come to you, let's do this test, blah, blah, blah. I test positive for SIRS. So I, by the way, before I even go into that, do regular labs do this type of testing or, or we have to go to special labs or how does that work? No, uh, Quest and LabCorp. Oh, um, great. Uh, yes, are, are what we primarily use. We do have our preferences, certain of the tests we'd rather do at Quest and LabCorp. But you know what? Again, if somebody says my insurance only covers LabCorp, 
I'm not going to have them do the test at Quest. I'm going to I'm going to work with whatever I can work with, and have them do all their testing at LabCorp so that they can get that get that covered. Okay. All right. So I get the test done. Let's say I have SIRS. I understand I'm one patient. Uh, everything is unique to every patient. So I'm asking you as more of a general question, what you see across the board, what is the protocol for healing? What would you tell me to do in a general way? Yeah. So the first step and the m- most difficult step is if you are currently being exposed in your environment, then the first step is to leave the environment or fix it. This is the hardest step. I'll tell you, in in my primary care practice, of course, I had 25% of the population has this kind of issue. So I certainly, I have a separate environmental practice, but I had many people who are highly functional in my primary care practice who I would say, I would ask certain questions and then say, I think that you could have this situation to test the markers. And then it came to the discussion about, well, you have this situation. And as soon as I said remediation or mold you need to look for in the house, the shade would go down. People people Mm -hmm. don't want, because it's an expensive, often an expensive endeavor to fix and, to, and a pain in the butt. And a pain, yes, <laughs> it is. But this, this is the thing I would say to them, because some of them actually did not want to go any further. And I would say that is, that is your, certainly your right to do nothing more. I've done my due diligence to inform you of this situation and tell you what your options are. But I would say to them, don't squander this opportunity. Because 10 years from now, if you do nothing then you actually could become one of, I used to call them my Friday people. Cause when I started, I only did the environmental medicine practice on Fridays. And I'd say, you're going to become one of my Friday people. And, <laughs> and so, and some of them certainly took advantage of the opportunity to, to fix and to move. But that is the, that's the first step and it's the most difficult step. But what we know is if you take a person in a bad environment who's ill from stirs and you pick them up and plunk them into a good environment without any treatment, you're going to see 25, sometimes as high as 50% improvement in symptoms just by getting them out of the bad environment. So what we do sometimes when people can't move, they're underwater in their houses, they're renting, they don't know where to go. We, you know, I work with them on uh, setting up a sanctuary room, trying to minimize the exposure. I mean, there are, there are things that we can do that will improve, not fix the situation when someone is in the water damaged building until they can find a way to get into that good space. But once you've now, say theoretically, we've plunked them out of the bad environment, they're in the good environment, we give them a bile acid sequestrant. Cholestyramine is the lexus of, of the binders for this problem. Its little sister is cholesalvalam, is well called, easier to do. We get them, titrate them up on a schedule of binding. And basically the binder removes the spores and spore particles that the immune system was unable to remove. Remember what I said, the defect is that the immune system can see them, it cannot remove them. And so your immune system is reacting to the DNA in those spores and spore particles. So you give them a bile acid sequestrant. There are some other, if the VEGF is low, if certain markers are, if the MMP9 is high, we, we use high dose fish oil, if the, hmm. unless the person has histamine problems. And there are some like nuances. Well, you wouldn't use this because of that. You would do something else. But in the right environment, usually what we see, if there's no other confounding condition, what we see is just progressive improvement. It really is about the environment. You know, that is the most challenging piece. The treatment really is not the challenging piece. It's, it's the environment. Yeah, I echo that sentiment because I'm pretty sure I know where my mold exposure came from. I grew up in a house that now I realize, especially looking at your site, looking at Dr. Shoemaker's site had a lot of clutter, not from me, but 
It did, and the clutter kept getting worse. And I know the basement was flooded at least once. So I'm almost sure. And sometimes I have to go back to that house. And when I do, I always feel sick. Yeah. Always. Yeah. And I finally said, and you know, I did something so stupid because I didn't know, I didn't have any of this information. And I had to help the family member clean out the basement, not knowing what I was doing. And I was down for, I don't know, three to four days. I couldn't, I was, bedridden is a strong word, but <laughs> I was, I was really sick for three to four days after. And I realized what I was doing when I got that information. And this person is in a couple of weeks actually moving to a whole new environment. And I said to, I'm helping him move. And I said to um, someone else involved in the situation, I said, we're not moving his moldy shit into a new environment. I said, that I won't do because this person has plenty of money. They can easily buy a new bed. They can easily buy a new couch, plenty of money, no no money issues whatsoever. So that's something I refuse to do. And I am taking a stand on that one. (laughs) Good. It's it's the right stand. It it is absolutely essential. You don't want to take the the spore laden items into your new clean environment. Not worth it. No. Nope. And this this person as well, I notice when he's at his house, he's much sicker than when he sometimes is somewhere else at another person's house. He's fine. And I'll talk to him on the phone and I, I know that's an issue. So anyway, I digress, but I have seen when you take even just me out of the environment how much you can flourish. And I just want to say that Dr. Pegg, you know, we don't have a lot of hope sometimes with autoimmune. We don't have a lot of hope with UC and you just gave us some hope. There's some light at the end of the rainbow. No, that doesn't make sense. Light at the end of the tunnel. Does that make sense? Yeah, the light at the, what's end, at the end of the tunnel. What's at the end of the rainbow? Gold. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about. There's something there. But the whole point is you've given us hope and I really appreciate that. So now I just want to ask one more question about the protocol. So again, in a very general way, let's say I come in presenting symptoms of UC. I do have brain fog. I do have issues with histamines, blah, blah, blah. And you say to me, hey, I'd like to change your diet. Now, right now I'm doing gaps. That's what I'm doing. I know you like the carnivore cure diet as well. Would you recommend one of these diets to people or not really? So the standard recommendation in the Shoemaker Protocol is actually to really limit sugar and simple carbs, especially amylose, the carbo- with that starch, if the certain markers are abnormal. Other than that, there's really no general recommendation for a way to eat in the Shoemaker Protocol. Now, as a clinician working in this arena for a long time, and I'm also certified in Dale Bredesen's program on reversing cognitive impairment. And so when you're talking, and dementia, when you're talking about the brain, you know, there we know that ketogenic diets, carnivore, are very good for improving and healing the brain. When, you, when you're using ketones as a source of, of energy instead of sugar, you're, and you're trying to heal a brain, that's an advantage. Now, can everyone do carnivore or keto? Of course not. It's a subset of people that, that are willing and able to do that. So if they're willing and able and they want to do that, then I support them in that decision. I don't push them to do a particular type. If gap makes sense for them, then that is what we go. But basically, my general recommendation around around diet is avoid simple sugar and limit simple carbohydrates. And if you're going to have carbs, have more complex carbohydrates. Okay. So now I'm going to be selfish and ask you a question. Sure. What has amylose? So the the most egregious fruit, I will say, and only the only one I ask people to really limit are bananas. Oh, good! I don't eat them. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Um, vegetable wise, carrots, turnips, beets, and potato are high in oh, amylose. I knew you were going to say potato. I, I knew you were going. Damn it! <laughs> and I like this beet juice as well. So that makes me. I'm going to cry now. So so. Beet juice, potato, carrot, and turnip? And turnip. Those are the most egregious ones. Okay. 
and this this new fad with the beet juice. I got to tell you, I had some. So the amylose raises MMP9, one of the cytokines. You don't want your MMP9 high. It basically attacks your blood-brain barrier, and so beets are notorious for raising MMP9. And I had someone come in not that long ago and her MMP9 was literally, it's supposed to be under 332. It was literally 2,700. And I said to her, what the heck are you doing? And we walked through a few things and I said, are you eating bananas? No. Oh, I got this new beet juice. I'm this new beet juice stuff I'm doing. She was putting beet, these beets on her, on her salad every day and whatever. Sometimes a good thing can be a bad thing. Like there are good things about about beets. There are good things about beets, but the sugar is the sugar component of the amylose part is not a good thing. So you always have to weigh what is your problem and does does eating something make your problem worse? Because if it does, it's not worth the nutrients you're getting from it. Okay. So that makes me sad. (laughs) (laughs) That makes me sad with the beets and the I don't eat carrots or turnips, but that makes me or bananas. But uh, that makes me sad with the beet juice and the potatoes. That makes me really sad. So um, I'm going to know to not do that. And then you want to focus on complex carbohydrates, which are what your leafy greens and things like that. Yeah. So if you're going to do, say, if oats are not an issue, I mean, some people do sensitivity testing and, and certain foods are not a good match for them. So when I make these comments, I'm just assuming that that sure, is sure. not an issue. So instead of doing, you know, the oatmeal that you boil the water and pour the hot water on it, which is terrible and very simple and will raise blood sugar very quickly, you know, you do the steel cut oats that you cook on the stove or in the microwave for, you know, 20 minutes or so. And that would be considered more complex and good fiber. You know, pre uh, prebiotics are often your higher fiber foods. And we know that that help prebiotics help to lay the foundation for healing the gut. Okay, good. I eat a lot of sauerkraut and things like that. So I'm assuming that's good. Okay, perfect. Thank you. One last question. And you actually mentioned it. It does not have to do with UC or IBD, but I was so fascinated. You spoke about it on the Nutrition with Judy podcast, and you just mentioned it about this study with either it was Alzheimer's or dementia patients and Fiji water. And I was captivated and now I'm drinking some Fiji water because of it. So would you please... Sure. So what we know about certain of the heavy metals is they are directly neurotoxins, right? We know that lead is a neurotoxin. We know that mercury is a neurotoxin. And we know that aluminum is a neurotoxin. There was a group that looked at, in the UK in 2013, that looked at people who had already been diagnosed with early dementia. And they did fairly sophisticated neuropsych testing at baseline. And they had only one intervention in the study, and that was a liter of Fiji water because Fiji water has 83 milligrams of silica per liter. Now, silica is is naturally occurring, and it is known to remove arsenic and aluminum. It's Those are the two easiest metals for me to deal with if somebody has accumulated a fair amount because they really just need to take silica. So in this study, the participants, there were 15. They did their liter of Fiji water a day for 12 weeks. And at the end of the study, they retested them with the same testing they did in the beginning. And three of the people had statistically significant improvement in their cognition. Those were people that aluminum was one of the primary reasons why they had their cognitive impairment. So we can't forget about these, you know, all of these other things that create the perfect storm, right? The perfect storm of dysregulation and inflammation. So even though I, you know, I worked a Shoemaker protocol, I always include metals for consideration in part of the evaluation. Okay, amazing. I just love that. I've been drinking quarter cup of Fiji water every day. So Fiji stock is just going to go up. (laughs) So I want to know where to find you. Also, how far out are you booking, especially online, because I have listeners all over the globe. Info at regenixhealing.com would be the email to use. 
And I just gave up my primary care practice of 28 years, December wow. 31st. And I was thinking that that was going to open up a, a lot of, um, make things a little bit easier in the environmental practice. And, and it has. But right now, July, end of July is probably where. Now, I say that, but these schedules are dynamic. People are changing appointments. So they're going out and we are constantly rearranging. I mean, Tina that works here with me, you know, it's one of our greatest challenges is managing that schedule. So it is not unusual for someone to be pulled up from their the original appointment time to fill spots that open up because some of the existing people actually had to reschedule. So I, I don't make guarantees, but I, I say that often um, we are able to move people up from that weight. Okay. So let's just say if you can't move someone up, it's right now, it's April 21st, 2023. If I contact you today, most likely I would get an appointment late July, 2023. And that's also online, correct? It could be in person, the the appointment. Okay. So oh, sure. yeah. Yes. Okay. And my daughter, Ruth, is a proficiency partner in surviving mold. So that's not, they're not certified, but they've passed the test and studied. And so we do have a situation where we call it fast start. If someone signs on with Ruth as a health coach to start the process, I will order the labs to be done as long as they're established with Ruth. So it is a way to get the ball rolling and not be sitting for two to three months waiting for something to happen. Okay. And I don't think two to three months is bad. And then they can also go to your website, regenixhealing.com. Yes. Is that the best way to find you? Okay, great. And then, oh, I have one more question about logistics. So I have a lot of listeners in Australia. By the way, to my Australian listeners, I hope you had a nice Anzac day. That was this past weekend. And I believe from what I read, it is like our Memorial Day, Dr. Peg, it's like our Memorial Day. So it's for those who have served in the Australian and also the New Zealand military. So if you have, thank you for doing so, even though it's not our country. Thank you. I appreciate it. So anyway, so these Australian uh, listeners, can they work with you online and then get the SIRS lab testing in Australia? So I have not had an Australian patient, and I think largely because there are some non-shoemaker but SIRS-educated clinicians in Australia that, pe- okay, great. that people can access. Sandeep Gupta trained under uh, Dr. Shoemaker for a good period of time. I know that he's actively seeing patients in Australia. So what is the name again? Uh, can, can you, yep. so I can put it in the show notes. So first name is Sandeep, S-A-N-D-E-E-P. Yep. And Gupta, G-U-P-T-A. Great. So if somebody can reach him in Australia, then he could inform them of the other people, because I'm pretty sure there are other people treating mold illness in Australia. Okay, perfect. Excellent. So I just want to thank you. You're amazing. You're as great as everyone told me you were going to be. I thank you so much for just being on this podcast and just being a light and being hope and answering all of our questions thoroughly. And in my household, when we have a perfect poo, you know, it just slides out of your body. It's a perfect color and it's solidly formed. And you're just so proud of yourself that you turn around the toilet and you go, wow, look at what I've done. We call that a green heart. So what do you wish everyone, Dr. Pegg? I wish everyone listening uh, a wonderful Green Heart Day. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you, Jay, for the opportunity.